Okay, turn to the, to the book of Luke. As Luke, Luke, I am your father. No! Didn't I have some water somewhere? Did I leave my water down there? Oh, is my water next to you? I know I had water somewhere. Oh, it's back here. Yeah. Remember that thing I said about ADD? Okay, that's, uh, I'm losing everything. I want to entitle this message The Twelve. Or I could entitle it uh, Three Somewhat Academic but Hopefully Edifying and Inspiring Questions about The Twelve. But they like shorter titles, and so we'll just stick with The Twelve. Starting about the Twelve Apostles. And we're reading four verses here. Not the most exciting verses in the world, but we're not out to entertain, are we? We're here to learn the Word. And, uh, and you'll find that as you get into the Word, there's always something to learn and to grow by. So it says this in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, TNIV version. One of those days, Jesus went out to the mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. He did that a lot, you know, spent the whole night praying. And I'm not going to preach in that verse except to say this. It convicts the daylights out of me. I, I, this week, as I read that, it's like all of a sudden, I'm called to imitate him, and this is what he did. Man, am I a loser. <laughs> I, I can count on one hand the number of times I've done that, and none of them in the last three years. Uh, so the senior pastor is a loser, in case you were wondering. Uh, I thank God Jesus loves me anyways. But, but it, this isn't like an ought should shame thing, like, you know, okay, now there's a rule. Uh, once a month I have to do this. But rather, we're to cultivate the kind of hearts that hunger for God such that you might find yourself sometimes praying through the night. Here Jesus was facing an important decision, and he just instinctively went to the Father. And um, uh, we just need to be a people who pray more. I need to be a person who pray, prays more. So I'm not going to preach on that verse. Let's go on. Verse 13, I want to preach about stuff that you need to hear, not what I want to hear. <clears throat> when morning came, just kidding, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he designated apostles. Uh, the term apostles just means sent one, or one who's commissioned to carry out the message and a mission of another. It has a special meaning as assigned to the 12. They're designated the apostles. It's a title that they carry. But the word apostle is sometimes used in the New Testament in its just ordinary lingo sense. Um, uh, one who is sent to carry out an apostolic ministry, an overseeing ministry. You find it used that way, and if you don't know the difference, it can be a little confusing. So, for example, Paul says in um, Romans 16, he says, Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles. And they were in Christ before I was. Um, here's two outstanding apostles, and yet they're not part of the original 12. They weren't named in the verses we just read, but they were called apostles. Uh, they, they had an apostolic ministry, but here Paul's using the term in its, in its ordinary sense. One thing that's very interesting is that Junia was a woman. And even in the first century, it tells us in some locales, women could have apostolic ministries, overseeing ministries. There was other locales where it wasn't advantageous to the kingdom, such as Ephesus. But here, Junia is a woman in patriarchal, sexist first century, and she's got an apostolic ministry. And I'm thinking if they could have, a, have an apostolic ministry in the first century, that why shouldn't they in the 20th century? I rest my case. Had to put that out there. Finally, uh, uh, it says this in, in verses 14 and 15. It just names the uh, apostles. Simon, 
whom he called Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, who was the tax collector, Thomas, who was the doubter, James, the son of Elpheus, Simon, who was called the Zealot. And that was a political organization that would sometimes spend their spare time assassinating tax collectors. They were the left wing of the left wing. Matthew, the tax collector, is the right wing of the right wing. And somehow they found a way to get along. So I'm thinking it's got to be okay for Democrats and Republicans to be able to mix it up together in the body of Christ. But that's not what I'm going to preach on either. Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot. And that word just means carries the sword. So he was probably a zealot as well. Who became, note the word became there, who became a traitor. This is the reading from the word. Let me just pray for a moment. Father, let your anointing come down. Open our minds, open our hearts, open our being to receive your word and to be impacted by your word and transformed by your word. Make us sold out kingdom disciples, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 We always say the best way to get into the Word is to ask questions. Ask questions. And so there's three questions I want to ask about this uh, passage that we read this morning. The first question is, why 12? The second question is, why Judas among the 12? And the third question is, why any of these guys as among the 12? Those are the three questions. So question number one is, why 12? Could Jesus have had 11 disciples or 13 disciples or, or four, four, four apostles? Did it have to be 12? And the answer most scholars would agree is, yes, there's a meaning to 12-ness. Now, here's what the meaning is. You'll find that 12 crops up quite a bit in the Bible, but the primary application as it concerns this passage is, is this. All of the Jews in the Old Testament were descendants of Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons, not 11 or 13, he had 12 sons. And at one point in Genesis chapter 49, he lay, he, the Spirit of God comes on him and he lays his hands on each of those sons and he prophesies over each one of them. And it's clear from the prophecy that out of each of these 12 sons would come the 12 tribes of Israel that would have a, di a distinct role to play in the body of Christ. And so when they get into the promised land, they, they, uh, they uh, delineate Israel in terms of these 12 tribes. And every person can trace their lineage back to Jacob through one of these 12. These 12 are like the founding fathers of the nation of Israel. When Jesus chooses 12 apostles, he's making uh, quite a statement with that. What he's doing is he's saying that he's drawing a connection between what he is doing now with this new movement that he's starting called the kingdom of God that we're still a part of today. There's a parallel between that and what Yahweh was doing in the Old Testament when he, when he designated the 12 sons of Jacob as the founding fathers of Israel. In fact, in doing this, Jesus is putting himself in the position of Yahweh. He's actually making a divine claim like he's got the right to bring up a new 12. And in bringing up a new 12, he's really saying what he's founding is a new Israel. There's continuity with the old Israel because he's going to fulfill the mission of the old Israel. And yet there's new elements that differentiate this Israel from the old Israel. What it means is that if you're part of the kingdom revolution, because you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you are, you are still carrying out the mission that Israel had in the Old Testament. In that sense, you're incorporated into Israel, as Paul says all, all Gentiles are. 
The main job of Israel in the Old Testament, main goal was to be a mustard seed that would uh, uh, be used by God to reach the whole world to bring the truth about who Yahweh was. That's why getting them in the promised land was very, very important because that was the main trade route of the ancient world. And God wanted to use them to kind of leaven the whole world gradually to bring the world to a knowledge of who God was. And he kept on revealing more and more and more about himself as he went on. Now what happened with Israel, and it's what's happened to the church to a large degree today, is that instead of seeing themselves as the servants of the world, they, thought they saw themselves as the righteous judges of the world. And... Uh, they began to see their uniqueness, instead of a uniqueness to serve, it was a uniqueness to be the special people of God who are better than other people, and they started looking down on other people, and, and, and it really got messed up. And so self-righteousness creeped into Israel as it did, does so much of the church today. And so Jesus comes to now complete the mission of Israel. He is the incarnation, if you will, of Israel. He, he's he's the, the, the Jew who, who, who is the epitome of the whole nation. And now all who believe in Jesus are incorporated into Christ, which means we're incorporated into that, that, that Israel, what God was up to in the Old Testament. That's why Paul says in, in Romans uh, 11 that even Gentiles, when we believe, we're grafted in to, to, to Israel. That's why Paul refers to the church as the new Israel. We are carrying out the mission that Israel uh, what, what was initially given. That's the continuity. And that's what Jesus is saying when he, when he uh, uh, brings out 12 apostles. But it's also very important that we notice the difference between what we're doing and what was going on in the Old Testament. There's a totally different modus operandi, mode of operation. Uh, this new kingdom, this new Israel, this new movement, its defining characteristic is not that it's a set-apart nation, as though you could have a Christian nation. It's not that it's a set-apart race. It's rather, it's a set-apart people who look like Jesus Christ. When you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God comes in and begins to replicate Jesus' DNA in you. So you begin to feel like, think like, move like, act like Jesus Christ. He begins to take over your being. And so you always know the kingdom of God is present when and only when into people individually and collectively begin to look like Jesus Christ. It always looks like Jesus Christ dying on Calvary for the world. It's about bleeding in service to show God's love to the world. That's what makes the kingdom the kingdom. If, if, if a movement or an individual, to the degree that it looks like that, it's the kingdom. To the degree that it doesn't look like that, it's just something else. And it may be good, it may be decent, it may be great, it may be smart, but it's not the kingdom doesn't matter what it says or, or what the person says or what the group says about itself. If it, it, it's only to the degree that it, looks, it replicates the life of Christ. Only to that degree is it, uh, is it the kingdom. It means that, that uh, the movement today, the new Israel as opposed to the, old, the, the Israel of the Old Testament, this is an all-inclusive Israel because it's an Israel that looks like Jesus Christ. It's no longer defined by a nation or, or an ethnicity or a race or, or any other thing of the sort. You can't identify it with a nation, not even a Christian nation. You can't identify it with any political party. Rather, this is a, a movement that's about tearing down those kinds of walls. It's an all-inclusive movement. It includes all nations and all peoples and all tribes and all tongues.
tongues in all cultures. It, it's got its arm, arms around every person on the planet because every person on the planet is one that Jesus Christ has died for. This is why reconciliation is at, at the center of, of what the kingdom is all about. No longer is it to be a group that's uh, us against them, but rather it's us in service to you, which means we include you, and it's an all-encompassing kind of thing. We are the new Israel that God is using to now leaven the whole world. That's question number one. Question number two. Why Judas? Judas who betrayed Jesus. Why would Jesus choose somebody who was going to betray him? Why was a traitor called to be one of the twelve? Sometimes when I'm preaching, uh, I get, before my message, I give a warning label. I'm going to give a warning label. Here's a warning label. Here's the warning. A lot of you will not have heard what I'm going to say right now. And I've, know, I've noticed that in evangelical culture, there's kind of a resistance to anything that, that's new. Because as many of us have heard, the old uh, you know, adage, uh, or adage, whatever it is, uh, if it's new, it can't be true. And if it's old, it's already been told. Which usually means if it's new to me, it can't possibly be true. Which works great if you happen to be the one person on the planet that's received all the truth and nothing but the truth from the moment of birth. But what are the odds of that happening? Uh, I, I think we've got to have some... some I, I want to ask that you have an open mind on this. I know that's sometimes hard to, 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 to you know, get new stuff. But this is an issue that I think is very, very important. You don't have to agree with me, but I want you to follow this. Put your thinking caps on because we're going to go uh, a little deep here. We do that once in a while as we're studying the Word here at Woodland Hills Church. And, and we're going to go a little bit deep here. Here's the question I want to ask. Was it a foregone conclusion that Judas was going to betray Jesus? Did he have to betray Jesus? Uh, was he destined to betray Jesus? Which means, was he destined to be damned? Now, many people, in fact, most people think so. And maybe for good reasons. Here's what the Bible says about this. Jesus, when he's praying in John 17, he's praying about the, the apostles, and he says, None of the apostles has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. Yeah. By the way, whenever you find a passage that seems like it's doesn't fit the good news and doesn't fit the character of God, I encourage you to dig deeper because almost always there's something else going on uh, that explains it. But this looks like, look, it looks like it's prophesied that someone's got to betray uh, Jesus. Judas fits the bill. And so it looks like Judas had to betray Jesus to fulfill Scripture. It looks like he was destined to betray Jesus, which means he was destined to go to hell. And that raises some interesting theological questions. Does God do that to people sometimes? And how could Judas be blamed for something if he was destined to do it from, from the time he was born, from the time before he was born, from the, from the moment God had the idea of creation, it was destined for Judas. How was he responsible for that? And if Judas could be damned from the moment of birth or before, maybe you are too. Maybe your newborn baby that you're so cute and you're holding in your arms. Uh, you know, and, and maybe, in fact, maybe God just has one group of people that are, that are predestined to go to heaven and another predestined to go to hell. Um, and uh, there's a lot of people who believe that. And how do you know that you're in one or the other? You say, well, because I'm a follower of Jesus. But Judas was a follower of Jesus for quite some time. He looked pretty good, didn't he? And yet he turned out to not be in there. So, so if, you know, if I had a dollar for every person I've ever, had to, I've ever talked with who's gotten somewhat screwed up over this thought, I'd be a fairly wealthy man. Hence my topic right now. Okay, put on your thinking caps. Here we go. I'm going to make two points. 
Because I don't think Judas was destined to betray Jesus. And just hear me out on this. Number, oh, I haven't even made my point yet. <laughs> okay, let's move on. That was an easy, easy audience. Two points. Number one, let's look at this phrase, doomed for destruction. What does it mean? The Greek is huios tes apoleas. And it literally means son of the destruction. Huios is the word for son. Son of the destruction. Some translations have uh, predestined for damnation or ordained for destruction or something along that, that sort. But the original Greek simply has son of the destruction. Now the phrase son of in the ancient Jewish world was, if it, if it wasn't meant uh, biologically, it was an idiomatic way of, of saying in the nature of, in the nature of. And so when, when uh, uh, you, fr- you read this phrase, as you do frequently in the Bible, uh, son of man. Ezekiel was called the son of man. Jesus was called the son of man. What it's referring to is that they have the nature of a man or of a human being. They're mortal, sometimes translated mortal. You have a human nature. When Jesus is called the son of God, some people think, well, if he's a son of God, he can't be God. But if you're looking at it from a first century perspective, it says just the opposite. To be the son of God is to have the nature of God. See, it's his nature. James and John in Mark chapter 3 are referred to, their nicknames were the sons of, Ze- uh, sons of thunder. Sons of thunder. But no one was saying they were born from thunder, nor was anyone saying they're doomed for thunder. What they're saying is they have the nature of thunder. And if you read the Gospels carefully, you find out that they did have the, the nature of thunder. They were the ones in, in uh, Luke 9, I believe it is, where uh, the disciples went to a town to preach the gospel, and the town rejected them. And it was James and John that said, Lord, let's call down fire from heaven and incinerate these people. <laughs> and Jesus says, I'm sure, you, yeah, you don't know what spirit you're speaking with, he says. You don't know, you, you're not getting it, are you? But they had this thunderous you know, kind of uh, personality to them. But it, it, the, the, the son of means nature of. Uh, has that kind of uh, a nature going on. And so when Jesus says that Judas is the uh, son of the, uh, of, of the perdition, son of the destruction, there's nothing there about a temporal reference. There's no ordained or anything of the sort. He's simply saying, as I'm talking right now to you, this man has the one whose nature is fit to be destroyed. And there's no temporal reference at all. When he got that way isn't said. How he got that way isn't said. He's just saying right now, this is his nature. There's nothing, there's nothing faded about it. But what about the scripture that has to be fulfilled? Doesn't that fate Judas? And the answer I want to suggest to you is no, it doesn't. Now, here's where you really got to put in your think caps and listen to that warning label and keep an open mind. Because I believe there is a ton of misunderstanding in the church today about what prophecy is. We've heard too much from Gene Dixon and Nostradamus and Edgar Cayce, and we think that prophecy is this kind of uh, a divination. Greeks thought of prophecy that way. Ancient Greeks, they were really into divination, consulting the, the, the oracles of Delphi. And so when they spoke about prophecies, they had a crystal ball kind of mindset of something that had to happen. But I want to submit to you that Jews did not have that ordinarily have that, that, that way of looking at prophecies. There were predictions that are fulfilled in the Bible. I'm not, Bible, I'm not saying there wasn't, but that wasn't their normal way of understanding prophecy. Here's how I got into this. Here's how I, I began to learn about this. I was a uh, student at the University of Minnesota. I was majoring in philosophy, taking this philosophy class, and there's a kid there that's the smartest kid in the class, and I start witnessing to him. And at one point I said, 
uh, and I bet some of you maybe have used this argument. I said, do you know that there are 300 specific prophecies uh, in the Old Testament that Jesus fulfilled, meticulous stuff, and, and given thousands, hundreds of years, maybe sometimes thousands of years before Jesus ever existed. And the odds of that coming by chance are 10 to the 46th power. <laughs> and he looks at me, and he's not a Christian. He goes, get out of here. Prove that. I go, okay. So I go home and get my Josh McDowell evidence that demands a verdict, which is where I got all this stuff from. And I Xerox, I Xerox the page that has, or the pages that have all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And, uh, and, and then he's got this calculation quoting somebody who said the odds of that having by chance are 10 to the 46th power, which I don't know how they figured that out, but, but it doesn't matter. So I give it to, to him, and I said, here it is right there. Go home and study that, and, and it'll make you a Christian. He comes back the next week in this class, met once a week, and he goes, you got to be kidding me. This was a joke, right? You're kidding me? You're a philosopher, and you're giving me this as your proof? I go, what, what? He goes, did you read these verses? I didn't. <laughs> Always check the sources before you leverage your credibility on them, all right? I, I hadn't read these verses. I, you know, um, I was just taking Josh's, and Josh means well in the book, in other respects, is a very good book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, but this section is not going to be your strongest evangelism tool. Because I, I went back and I looked at all those verses, and with only a few exceptions, and the exceptions are pretty impressive. There are some predictions that Jesus fulfills. But on the whole, there's nothing predictive about these verses. Most of them have to do with David complaining uh, about something or other, or something, some event that happened to Israel, or, or, or something of the sort. But there's nothing predictive about them. Um, what I've learned is that when, in the Old Testament, when, or in the New Testament, when it says that uh, an event fulfills something, uh, it doesn't mean that that passage predicted this event. To get at this, let's look at the verse that Judas supposedly uh, fulfilled. Okay? The verse is given in John 13, 18, the first time that Jesus mentions that he's going to be betrayed. And this is what he says in John 13, 18. He says, this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Okay, that's the verse that Judas is going to betray. The verse is Psalms 41, 9, which says, David's saying, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now, is that verse predicting anything? The answer is no. It, it's, it, it's, it's a descriptive verse, not a prescriptive verse, and it's in the past tense, not, the, uh, a, not a future tense. That becomes even clearer when you look at the whole passage uh, that is found in, which is always a good idea when you're interpreting the Bible. If you look at the whole of Psalms 41, you read things like this, verse 4. He said, have mercy on me, Lord. Heal me, for I have sinned against you. All my enemies whisper together against me. They imagine the worst for me, saying, a vile disease has beset him. He will never get up from the place where he lies. And now comes this verse. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Now notice, Jesus never, never asked for forgiveness, did he? I don't think so, because he never sinned. So that verse obviously wasn't predicting anything about Jesus. Uh, there's no record of Jesus ever getting a disease, so that verse obviously isn't predicting anything about Jesus. There's no record of him ever having his enemies uh, whisper that he's never going to get recover from a disease, so that verse obviously does, isn't predicting anything about Jesus. But now we come to the verse about the close friend. But see, if Jesus didn't have someone betray him, 
we would no more be wondering about why this verse is, it wasn't fulfilled than we would wonder about why Jesus, why the verse about disease and forgiveness wasn't fulfilled. There's nothing predictive going on in those verses. They simply describe what David is at. And they don't say that anything in the future has to happen at all. Follow me on this. I got your attention. I can, I can feel it. Good. Let's look at another example. It's even clearer. In John 19, uh, it says, uh, Later, knowing that everything had, uh, had, had now been finished, Jesus is on the cross, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. They were mocking him. Are you thirsty? Oh, well, good. We'll give you some, some wine vinegar. Now, it, it may look like the guards had to do this, like they were fated to do this. From the foundation of the world, someone had to give Jesus vinegar uh, instead of water for his thirst. But let's look at the passage that was fulfilled in this episode. It comes from Psalms 69, verse 21. It says, They put gall, which is simply a word for poison. It refers to bile. They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar, not vinegar wine, but vinegar for my thirst. Now think about this. There's no record that, Jesus was, that anyone ever poisoned Jesus. So you've got to wonder, how is, the first, how is the second half of the verse about vinegar a prediction that has to be fulfilled when the first half of the sentence isn't a prediction that has to be fulfilled. If no one had given Jesus vinegar for water, we wouldn't be sitting here wondering, oh my gosh, what about that prophecy that didn't go fulfilled, any more than we're worried that he never got fed poison. The, the, nothing in the future has to happen on the basis of these, these passages. Are you thoroughly confused? Good. Okay. What's going on here? Okay, here's what's going on. Here's what I learned as I went back to the drawing board, having put down my Josh McDowell. Um, there's a thing. You see, it's always important whenever we're reading the Bible. We have to realize we're reading a, a culture, literature from a culture that's very different than our own. And you need to read it from the inside of their cultural presuppositions, not yours. We tend to bring a very Greek divinization, Edgar Cayce mindset to predictions in the Bible or, or to, to verses and prophecies in the Bible that, that the Jews of the first century did not usually share. There was a form of interpretation that was very prevalent in the first century called mid Midrashic interpretation. And Midrash, among the other things that, that is in, involved in this, this genre of interpretation, what they would do is they would look at contemporary events and interpret them in the light of the Bible. And the way that they do that is they, they draw parallels between things that were happening in the present and things that happened in the Bible. And they would sometimes refer to contemporary events as fulfilling the verse in the Bible. But they didn't mean that the verse in the Bible predicted this particular event. What they meant was that this event illustrates the principle found in that passage. It fulfills it. It completes it. It expresses in a par excellence way what that passage is about. So in Midrash, to say that this event fulfills that passage is simply to say that this event illustrates in a supreme way the principle of that passage. And you'll find if you look at, the, look, look at all the verses that Jesus supposedly fulfilled in, in, in the Gospels, he did fulfill them, but not in a Gene Dixon kind of a way. You look at them, and there's nothing predictive about them. In, in, in uh, Matthew 2, it says that uh, Mary and Joseph went into Egypt to fulfill that which was written. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Now you go back and look at that verse. It's Hosea chapter 6. 
It's Yahweh referring to Israel. Out of Egypt I have called my son. It's not predicting that anything in the future is going to happen at all. But you see, now that Jesus goes into Egypt, he didn't have to, but when he goes there, Matthew sees a meaning to it. He, he, he interprets it in the light of stuff that happened in uh, uh, the Old Testament. And so what he's doing there is he's, saying, he, he's telling us that Jesus is the embodiment of Israel. And just as old Israel was brought out of Egypt, so Jesus was brought out of Egypt. But if Jesus never went to Egypt, then no one would have noticed that verse as applying to Jesus. The meaning is given retroactively, you might say. But it's not that the event has to happen on the basis of that passage. My point is this. Judas didn't have to betray Jesus. That's why Luke says he became a traitor, which tells me he wasn't a traitor when Jesus called him. I believe he was called in good faith. He, of his own decision and volition, volition made himself to become a betrayer. He didn't have to betray Jesus. He wasn't fated to betray Jesus. Uh, no one is fated to betray Jesus. Now, maybe you're thinking this. Well, gall, gall. My lips are really bad. If, <laughs> some of you got it, some of you didn't. That's okay. Let's move on. ADD, what am I going to say? Um, look at it. If Judas didn't betray Jesus, then Jesus wouldn't have got crucified. God's plan for world history would have been shot down the tubes. My response to that is this. We've got to begin to learn how to give God credit for being smart. Really, 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 really smart. You see, if, if you're playing God in chess, he'll tell you one move into the game, depending on what move you made. I will checkmate you in not more than 114 moves. You can't see it, of course. No, because you have finite intelligence, but he's unlimited intelligence. Now, he's going to checkmate you, guaranteed. He's infinitely intelligent, you're not. But you get to choose how you're going to be checkmated. There's more than one way to checkmate you. There's actually 114 ways to checkmate you. So also, you know, it says in the Bible, Ephesians 2, or Acts 2 and Acts 14, that Herod and Pilate and all the others gathered around, and they did, uh, they crucified Jesus according to God's determinate foreknowledge and determinate will. Now, here it was certain that Jesus was going to be crucified, but it doesn't say that they were the ones determined to do it. Some way or other, Jesus is going to be crucified. But who's going to do it? How exactly it's going to go out can be left open. Why? Because God is that smart. We see the way it did go down, and because we're limited in intelligence, we're inclined to think that it had to go down that way for God to accomplish his plan. But I'm telling you that God is smarter than that. Judas didn't have to betray Jesus. Now that he's going to, he's made himself the one fit for destruction. God says, rats, but I can use that into my plan, and here's how it will go down. And he's been preparing that contingency from the foundation of the world because he anticipates everything perfectly. Why? Because he's infinitely intelligent. But it didn't have to go down this way. If it had gone down some other way, we'd be saying the exact same thing. My point is this. Judas wasn't destined to be damned. No one's born destined to be damned. God creates you. He is a God of love. Amen. He's a God of love. Everything he does is out of love. Creating people for the purpose of damning them, that's not a loving thing to do. Uh, uh, God, God's not willing that any should perish, the Bible says, but he wants all to come to repentance. Uh, Jesus, is a, uh, the, he died not just for our sins, but it says in 1 John 2, the sins of the whole world. It says God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says he wants to be the savior of all people. I could go on and on. I think you're getting the point. Even Peter says in Acts chapter 10, he says God shows no partiality and shows no favoritism. Praise God for that one. So the idea 
There are people all over the place who think that the cards are just against them. They didn't win the pre-existent lottery and now they're destined to go to hell. And I want to tell you that is a lie. God wants you saved. He wants you in his fold. And I don't care what you've done. I don't care what's on your track record. I don't care about any of that. What matters is that right here and right now, if you can hear my voice, check your pulse. If your pulse is beating, that's proof that God loves you. Because his love is holding you in existence. If you got any brain waves whatsoever, proof that God loves you. If you were born, it's proof that God loves you. Because everything God does, he does out of love. He does out of hope. And he wants to enter into a relationship with you. Know that right this moment. Know it. That, that no ifs, ands, or buts. You're loved by God. This fatalism has screwed up people's picture of God and picture of themselves in some, in some really twisted ways. But I'm telling you, God has given you a center of volition and he's calling on you to submit, surrender your life to him and enter a relationship with him. So why did Jesus call Judas? If you're asking me and I'm the one preaching right now, I'm going to tell you it's because he was hoping he'd stay one of the 12. But it could have gone down otherwise. Which now leads, and it did go down otherwise, which leads to my third question. Why any of these 12? Why any of these 12? I mean, they weren't particularly award-winning people, if you think about it. You know, in the first century, usually, usually the rabbis would, uh, you know, gather around them the creme de la creme, the cream of the crop, uh, you know, the, the, the ones who kind of stood out. Um, and when they came to appointing leaders of their schools, they, uh, they were even more particular. Jesus is really weird because he invites anybody who wants to follow him. Yeah, you can be my disciple, anybody. And when it comes to choosing the leaders of his movement... Well, they're not exactly award-winning. They're pretty ordinary, maybe a little subordinary. Um, you know, they're, they're the fishermen, and then he's got the, a couple zealots in the crowd, and he's got a tax collector in the crowd, and, and yet he calls them. What, what, one thing it should tell us is that in the kingdom of God, we shouldn't put too much on credentials. You know, reverend, doctor, that's okay. You got a rever- you're a reverend, you're a doctor, fine. But, but see, in a lot of places, those are kind of badges that, uh, that qualify you uh, to do certain ministries. And I'm telling you, they don't qualify you for squat. <laughs> Not in the kingdom of God. What qualifies you is this. Has God called you? Has God called you? Uh, has he gifted you in this particular ministry? There are some ministries where you need to have a, a, you know, a certain level of, of education or, or, or training. Got that. Wonderful. But, but the, the criteria is, uh, are you called? Are you gifted? Do you have the character and do you have the passion for it? Those are the only questions we ask at Woodland Hills Church. That's why, you know, half our pastoral staff, in fact, I don't know if any of our pastoral staff has, a, 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 in fact, I know they're not. I'm the only one who's ordained. <laughs> they don't have any REVs. That makes me special. No, but you know what? See, look at Norm. Norm never got any formal training on music, and he never went to a seminary, but the guy's gifted to lead worship. He's called to lead worship, and let him lead worship. Our executive pastor, who I hope is in the auditorium right now because I want to embarrass her, but uh, our executive pastor, and by the way, it's April 1st, and I'm really worried because she plays the nastiest April Fool's jokes I've ever seen in my life. Nasty, I'm telling you. Ooh. One of these days, I'm going to get back, but I just never think about it until it's too late, but... You know, she, she never went to seminary, uh, didn't have uh, qualifications. She's the one in charge of running the whole church, running the whole staff. I, I got the doctorate, but I'm not, I can't do that. I don't have the passion for it and certainly not the giftings for it. Uh, but she never went to seminary, never got in the training, and she's not even particularly biblically literate. She's always asking questions in the Bible that, you know, you're supposed to get like in third grade Sunday school class, but she wasn't raised in the church, so she missed that. But who cares? She's called. She's gifted. God called her to it. We affirm that. Now she's running a great staff. Praise God for that. Thank God for her. 
She is the Junia of Woodland Hills Church. Junia was that apostle female that I talked about earlier. Okay, so let's not get too hung up on credentials and all sorts of that sort of thing. So why did God choose, uh, why did Jesus choose these 12? What did they have that others didn't have? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. I don't have a clue. Jesus prayed all night, and God told him these, Father told him these 12, and that was it. So I, who knows? Who knows why? But uh, I do know this. They said yes. And that's very important. They said yes. Now, they didn't have to say yes any more than Judas had to say no. They could have opted out. In fact, Judas did opt out. God didn't turn them into robots so that they'd say yes. Even with Paul, the Apostle Paul, he was kind of added on to the apostolic uh, leadership team a little later on. I mean, this guy had a call. You talk about a call. God knocked him off his high horse. God showed up. Jesus shows up in this vision that blinds him for three days. I mean, that's a pretty persuasive call. But even that wasn't coercion. Later on, he's telling the story to King Agrippa. And he says this to, to King Agrippa. He goes, I was not disobedient to that heavenly vision. Now, you know, maybe I'm not a rocket scientist, but it seems to me that if, 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 if that phrase says anything at all, I, mean, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, it means he could have been disobedient to the heavenly vision. What's the point of saying I wasn't unless you could have been? See, so even Paul wasn't coerced into the kingdom. Yes, God uses influence. God will sometimes put a lot of pressure on you, but he's not going to turn you into a, a robot, which is why saying yes is significant. And they said yes. They said yes despite the fact that they had to know this was going to make their life inconvenient and, in fact, bring about some suffering. They're going to follow this Messiah around for three years. Who's going to support the family? Their wives are wondering. Uh, this isn't the most convenient thing that ever happened to them. But on top of that, Jesus, we saw last week, has already been ticking off the religious establishment. Right? They're already plotting against him. They had to know. In the first century, you tick off the people in power, it's not going to be nice. It's not going to be nice to you. It's going to be, it could be tough on you. Uh, they, this is going to be dangerous, and yet they say yes. And in fact, history tells us that uh, of the remaining 11 after Judas bailed, 10 of the 11 uh, died a martyr's death, a terrible death. Peter was crucified upside down. Some were fed to lions. Some were set on fire, as were other disciples of the time. Their enemies put them to death, which is why when Jesus says, love your enemies, you can know he's not just talking about grouchy neighbors. He's talking about real enemies. But these people said yes. And the point is this, that saying yes to Jesus will certainly be at times inconvenient in your life and may even bring some tremendous, require some tremendous sacrifice in your life. It may require great courage to say yes, both to becoming a disciple and answering the call of God that's on your life because there is a call of God on your life for a role, a vocation that you're supposed to play. And it will require sacrifice. This is why there's always more spectators of the kingdom than there are disciples in the kingdom. It's true back then, it's true today. Jesus could draw great crowds really fast. In fact, draw, drawing great crowds isn't very hard. You just got to have the right personality and, and give people what they want. You're going to get a crowd. Uh, he got a great crowd. People want healing. Well, that's great. So he got great crowds. He never got excited about it, though, because when he started preaching the harder stuff, the requirement stuff, the take, take up your cross stuff, uh, the John 6 stuff, you know what happened to those crowds? Most of them went away. Most of them left. They were spectators and beneficiaries. They like to look at what's happening. They like to clap for what's happening. They like to benefit from what's happening, but as soon as anything's required of them, eh, 
Eh, there's a guy down the street preaching an easier message. I'm going to go down there. You see, there's always more spectators than there are genuine disciples. No place is that more apparent than on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. The, the road is lined with people with their palms going, Hosanna, hey, Zana, 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 ho, King Jesus, coming into town. We worship you. And I'm sure they all felt sincere. They're clapping their hands. But see, what they were expecting was for Jesus, because this is what they all thought was supposed to happen. Jesus is supposed to ride into town, use his messianic power to kick Pilate's behind, get the Romans off their back, and liberate Israel. They wanted a political and military messiah. So they're all gun-ho as long as there's a potential for Jesus to be this. He, after all, is a miracle-working messiah. How better to work a miracle? But as soon as it becomes clear that Jesus isn't going to play their political game, not going to fit into their political categories, not going to fit into their nationalistic theology, as soon as it's clear that Jesus isn't going to do that, crucify him, crucify him. You see, there's always more spectators than there are disciples. Uh, spectator, uh, Palm Sunday spectators are all over the place. Good Friday disciples are very, very rare. Disciples who will follow the way of the cross. And so I want to end just by asking us this serious question, asking myself this serious question. To what degree am I a spectator and a beneficiary, or to what degree am I a genuine disciple? Do I let Jesus confront my most fundamental presuppositions and ideas? Is Jesus just there to make me feel a little better and give me some fire insurance and, and confirm what I already think about things? Or have you invited Jesus in to rock your world? Turn it upside down and follow the way of the cross. Close your eyes. I'm just going to ask the Holy Spirit here for one minute to apply this challenge to our lives. Where are you? Where are you? It may be that you're here and you've never really surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. And if, if, if that applies and you're feeling the call of God, you can say no. You can say no. He gives you that, that power. But I encourage you to say yes. Just right there in your heart. Yes. And are you a professing Christian, but you really are pretty much a spectator? Your life is pretty much what it would be even if you weren't a professing Christian, but you like to look at what's going on. If the Holy Spirit's applying that to you, and there's a call to go deeper with him, will you say yes? Yes. You can say no, but I'm encouraging you to say yes. And is there a specific ministry, perhaps, that God is calling you to? Maybe you've known about it for a while. Maybe you're just feeling it right now. But he's telling you to step up like he did the 12 apostles. Step up. It may be to become a missionary. I don't know. Maybe to go on a missions trip. It may be to help out with the children's ministry or the youth ministry. Maybe it's a ministry outside of this church. Maybe it's the resource ministry. But there's something that God's calling you to. And it may make your life really inconvenient. It may cost you. You may have to sacrifice. You are as kingdom as your life is sacrificial. Say yes. Say yes. You can say no. God's asking you to say yes. And just in your heart, submit to him. Submit to him. Holy Spirit, seal this message on our hearts and make us Good Friday disciples, not Palm Sunday spectators. Seal it, Holy Spirit. Amen. I want to end, I want to end a little different way. Could you stand? I'm going to, have a, I'm going to lead us in a corporate prayer. A kind of a pledge not a description of where we're actually at. It's a description of what we want to become. And as I'm getting ready for this, 
let me say that if you're here and you have any prayer need whatsoever, we have a prayer, t- prayer teams that will be up here after the service, and they'd love to spend some time praying with you. also want to remind you to pick up uh, cards on the Jesus legend to give to uh, family and friends, inviting them to come to uh, the uh, Easter service. But let's close with this corporate prayer. Pray it from your heart. Our Father, we thank you for your perfect love for us and for all people. Help us to be Good Friday disciples, not Palm Sunday spectators. Teach us how to follow and obey your voice. Transform us to become a people who increasingly look like Jesus, putting his gracious beauty on display in every facet of our life for the world to see and be attracted into your beautiful, victorious kingdom. Go out and build that kingdom in Jesus' name. God bless you. We love you.